Hi, welcome to the Midtown Vineyard Podcast. We're so glad you've joined us online. For daily encouragement, events, service times, and more, check out our website and social media. And now, this week's message. It was so cold this morning, I saw Ashton wearing socks. I've known that girl for years. It's the first time I've seen her in socks. It's such an odd story. It's one we never colored in Sunday school. Never colored it in children's church. I've never seen a VeggieTales about it. It's way back in the Old Testament. You don't even need to turn there. It's such a short story. And the setup for it will be a little bit familiar. Moses and the Israelites just after the Red Sea, the people are tired. They're worn out, worn down, aggravated, grumbling, bored. Oh, you left Egypt. You were rescued from a lifetime of slavery, generations of abuse under a regime of labor. You'd spend your life as a brick maker, but you were promised better days and freedom. A man showed up one day carrying a crazy magic staff, and he had this crazy story about a burning bush in the name of God. So you follow him out of Egypt under the mirage of paradise off on the horizon. But it's been a day walking in circles in no land of milk and honey, just more and more relentless heat. You cry out for food, so to make sure you don't starve, the Lord provides the same monotonous manna Every morning, which the Hebrew word manna literally translates, what is it? They didn't know what it was. Same time, same place, same meal, same grind. Is this the tomorrow you dreamed of? And before we move on, before we get off of this quickly, you ever been there? Midtown? You ever had a picture of the future, a vision you longed for, a life, an expectation, a dream, an aspiration, a goal, only to arrive and going seriously? This is it? I mean, they're tired. They're done. And if you listen to their complaints, you can't really blame them. How long do you expect people to follow God when he doesn't seem to show up? How many times do you expect people to keep praying prayers when their prayers seem to go unanswered? You just get to a point where you understand they're going to throw the towel in, and I get it. What they had before wasn't great, but to them it seemed better than this. And Maybe it was. In their minds, they traded one type of slavery for another, and they'd kind of rather have the former. You ever been in that place? Man, we've been following God. We're doing the right things, but I'm done. There's no blessings. There's no care. There's no mercy. And not only do we understand this, but I think God understands the mindset of this group. He's about to lose his children. They're about to make the worst mistake of their lives by turning back, and he's got to do something. And that's where we come up on this odd little story. Like I said, you don't even need to turn there. You just need to know it for our study of John. It happens in the book of Numbers, chapter 21. This story is only five verses long. You can even look at it later. I'll unpack it for us, but I read it as a kid, and wait, I got to it and went, wait, what just happened? Like, okay, let me read it to you. It says, they traveled, as the Israelites, leaving Egypt, right? They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea. They got to Edom, but the people grew impatient on their way, which, who wouldn't? They spoke out against God and out against Moses. And they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die out here in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. It's manna. What can you do with it other than eat it? You can't create new recipes. So the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. Wait, what? Like, I didn't see that coming. 
The Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many died. That'll show them. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and you. Translation, we didn't know he'd get so mad about it. Pray the Lord would take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake, put it on a pole. Anyone who's bit can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake, put it on a pole. Then anyone who was bit by a snake looked at the bronze snake and lived. The end. We're reading this as a kid, and I'm like, wait, what is going on? Like, these are scriptures we don't make veggie tales about. We don't color it, right? I should have asked Ross to read this for our call to worship today. How would you have liked that? Let's prepare our hearts for worship. And then many people died, right? What in the world? Like, this is so strange. But in order to understand where we're going this morning, we've got to understand this story. You know, as a church, we've been studying the Gospel of John. Fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke have all been written. John has read them. They've been out in print for decades. And you remember we set this up a few weeks ago. He's an old man, the only disciple to die of old age. And knowing what information is out there, he goes, I got to write a fourth gospel. And he includes things that the other gospel writers don't include. And in John 3, which is where we're headed that he's going to tell this story. He's going he's gonna to have Jesus reference this story from 1,400 years earlier. The one we don't color. The one we don't tell. The one where God delivers his people from Egypt. The plagues. The splitting of the sea. All of that happens in the rear view to this story. They're now in the wilderness. They're following God. But man, there doesn't seem to be a promised land. There doesn't seem to be milk and honey. No fruitfulness. It's all barren. It's desert. It's scorching heat. And we have this strange little story. The people speaking out against God. Oh, they're mad. They're letting God have it. They're letting Moses have it. And if you're honest, you've been there before too. Times in our lives when we're just done following God. I've walked and I've walked and I've walked, Lord. I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed. And I've done my best and stayed in line for you to do what? Why am I suffering? Why am I worse off than I was before? And yet they want to go back. God knows he's about to lose his children. So he goes to these extremes that we just read about to keep them from turning back in the story. In verse 6 of this story, it says, The Lord sent venomous snakes among them. This is what he does. This is the extreme he goes to to keep them from turning away. He sends venomous snakes, not just snakes, but venomous ones among them. They bite the people, and many of them died. I don't know if you're looking for a a verse to put on a coffee mug or a bumper sticker. (laughs) I've never seen this one out in public. We got a bunch of whiners and complainers. They're about to turn back, and God's like, here's some vipers. (laughs) That'll keep you from turning back. I mean, what in the world? And I don't know about these vipers if they bit the biggest troublemakers worst. Uh, first, the biggest uh, whiners first, like if they went after them. But this story is so strange. The people finally, they come to Moses and they say, hey, we sinned, we get it, we made God mad. He sent vipers. Pray he'll take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people and the Lord said, make a snake, put it on a pole. Really weird. Anyone who's bit by a snake can look at the pole and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake looked at the bronze snake and lived. A bronze snake. Okay, so a snake, and we get this, 
It's a universal sign, right? The image, the icon, the personification of evil, of sin. Remember the garden? Remember temptation? And this isn't just Hebrew culture. This is global, universal, world culture. This thing being the symbol of that. A serpent is universally the symbol of evil. So take the source of their torment, the representation of evil and sin, and God tells Moses, I want you to dip it in bronze and put it on a pole. Why? bronze. Well, as we learned in our study of Revelation, bronze is a metal that biblically, spiritually, metaphorically always represents judgment. It's a metal that's been heated in a fire, a fire representing purification. So something being purified of something else. It's been through the fire. So a bronze serpent is evil or sin that's been judged or purified Place it on a pole, lift it up. They look, they believe they are healed. And the Israelites move on, but God goes, I want you to hang on to that story. Control P, print, put it in there. I know it seems random. I know it seems unresolved. But boy, in 1,400 years, I'm going to have someone interpret that story for you. Such a bizarre story with a bizarre little ending. And now we're in John 3. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to John chapter 3. And just to set this up, a few weeks ago we said we're going to study the gospel of John. We said everything we said a moment ago, right? There's three other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Their documents have been out in print for decades. And John is an old man looking at all that they read, all the Jesus stories that were asked about, people coming up constantly, decades and decades, years and years, going, tell us the Jesus stories. What did he teach? What did he do? And John goes, what you need to know is who he was. Oh, you've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you want to know the what, read those. I want to tell you the who. Who he was. John starts his gospel, not at the beginning, not where Matthew, Mark, and Luke pick up the story, which is a manger. John goes, if your Jesus starts at a manger, you got too small a Jesus. He actually stands outside of time. He was there in the beginning with God. That's who he was. We see in the rest of John chapter 1, Jesus calling the first disciples. We talked about that last week. In John chapter 2, he starts his miracles. And the one that's recorded in John 2 is kind of a good one. I mean, Jesus goes to a party, and when they run out of wine, he goes, let's make more. Like, that's a pretty great miracle, and one that's a bit astounding by our modern sensibilities. He's getting a following. He's getting popularity. He's getting people following him. He doesn't buy into it, though. John 2 closes with John saying, Jesus didn't entrust himself to any of them. Like, he didn't buy into their popular, their esteem of him. He, he didn't entrust himself to that because he knows what's in man and more what's in the hearts of men. He knows how fickle they are. He knows, boy, if I live by your approval, I could die from your rejection. So I'm not setting myself up like that. I ain't buying in. And that's how John 2 ends. And then there's a scene change. John chapter 3, it's night now, and there's a man who's hungry for God. He knows a lot about him, but something's still missing in his name is Nicodemus. There, I gave you enough time to turn. John chapter 3, verse 1 says, now there was a Pharisee, circle, underline, highlight the word Pharisee. We'll get through this. Some of y'all are looking at the clock already. You're like, man, we still got communion coming up, and we had baptism, and dedications. like, what's going on? I promise I'm hurrying. Uh, Now there was a Pharisee 
a man named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Circle, underline, highlight, Jewish ruling council. Pharisee means that this man had given his life to religion, to memorizing and living out the Old Testament law. We said last week that someone of this level of education in that world would have had that much of their Bible memorized by heart. He's living out the rules. In fact, to help him keep those rules, they developed hundreds, over 600 other little rules to help them keep the big rules. That's who we're talking about when we're talking about a Pharisee. And not just that. It says he's a member of the Sanhedrin, which is the top 70 ruling class, right? He's part of their supreme court, the top 70 of Pharisees who decided everything for the religious people. He was elite. This man was the best religion had to offer. He's a big deal. And it says, verse 2, he came to Jesus at night, circle, underline, highlight, at night. And he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who comes from God. For no one could perform the signs, circle, underline, highlight, signs, you are doing if God were not with him. We don't know for sure. Maybe it's Jesus' popularity that causes Nicodemus to have to find him at night. Maybe there's too many people during the day. Probably it's because Nicodemus doesn't want to be caught with him. There's a secrecy to it. Jesus is doing controversial things. He goes to a party, and when they run out of wine, he makes more. And he keeps calling himself God. And and this is not getting the approval of the religious leaders. And so this religious leader who notices something different wants to know more, but he has to do it at night. It's frowned upon. Maybe he's taking a step, though, because he's a little bit hungry. And, And then the word signs. This is so important. And what he's referencing, what Nicodemus probably knows about, is the water into wine thing from the chapter before. And by the end of this biography, John is going to, he's going to tell us that if he included all of the miracles that Jesus did, it's such a great way to close a biography. If I wrote you about everything that Jesus did, all the libraries of the world couldn't contain it, which makes me go, oh, I want to read more. There's miracles we don't know about. Oh, apparently, lots of them. But consider this, there's 37 recorded in the Gospels, four Gospels, 37 miracles recorded. John only talks about seven. The other 30, the other authors all take, right? We called them synoptic Gospels. You remember this, sign meaning same, optic meaning looks, so they look the same. Matthew, Mark, and uh, Luke, they all kind of copy off of each other, and so they talk about the same 30 miracles. John has had decades to to kind of study their manuscripts, and he goes, I'm going to tell you about seven others, but he only chooses seven. Why so few? And notice that he calls them signs, not miracles, and this is important. Remember, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they've been out in print for a couple of decades. John's the only disciple to die of old age. He's watching Christianity in its infancy, first few decades, 30, 40 years, and he's realizing everybody's getting caught up in what Jesus did. Everyone wants to hear or read what Jesus did. So John writes the last of the Jesus stories, and John, a decade separate, goes, I want to tell you who he was. Right? You're studying what he did. I want to tell you who he was. And these miracles are not miracles. They're signs to who he was. And church, let me tell you right off the bat, we've got to understand this. The difference that Nicodemus got. Nicodemus is right on track here when he calls them signs. He comes to Jesus. He goes, we know you're a good teacher. You must be from God, sent from God, anointed by God, given power and authority. I mean, who else could pull off these 
signs, and he gets it. Let me tell you the difference. And if we don't get this, we're going to be frustrated and angry and disappointed with God because we're going to be all the time looking for miracles, not who the miracles point to. That's the point. Because a sign, which is a word chosen specifically by John, a sign is not in and of itself the thing. A sign in and of itself is what you go to to point you to something greater. That's why we call it a sign. It's certainly why John says it repeatedly in each of these, a sign. In all seven that he mentions, he calls them a sign. Why? Because they point to something or someone greater. Not just the sign in and of itself, but today our Christianity seems it's gotten wrapped up in what John's trying to get across here. We want miracles. We want relationships to change, tumors to shrink, cancers to be healed. We want finances to be restored. We want the miracles. We chase the signs. But notice Nicodemus doesn't come with a bucket of water going, oh, can you turn this into wine? Like, he's not looking for a miracle. He's been drawn because he's seen the signs, and he wants to know more about who the sign points to. Right? He goes, I've seen the signs. They've brought me to you. I'm not here looking for miracles. Miracles were just supposed to point me to you. See, today I think we tend to want the miracles. And if we're not careful, we start approaching our spirituality as getting Jesus to. Getting Jesus to cure the sickness. Getting Jesus to fix the finances. Getting Jesus to restore the relationship. Getting Jesus to. But to John, to Nicodemus, I think momentarily, real Christianity isn't getting Jesus to, but getting to Jesus. Does that make sense? Not getting him to do anything, but getting to him. If we come expecting Jesus to, we get disappointed, frustrated when he doesn't. We walk away. We complain God's broken. He's out of order. Don't use the machine. Don't put your coins in it. If you press the button, it won't give you what you want. But it's not God that's broken. It's religion that's broken. That's religion. That's lucky Christian. That's, that's voodoo Christian. rabbit foot theology. Expecting if I push this button, God will get me what I want, right? John goes, let me show you the purpose of miracles. Miracles aren't to get Jesus to, but to get you to Jesus. They are signs. That's why Nicodemus is such a great case study. The sign is pointing to Jesus. Nicodemus is the best religion has to offer, right? And it's religion, as we deduced a minute ago, it's religion that's broken. Remember, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's given his life not just to keep in the rules, but to keep in all the little rules that helped him keep the major runs, like 600 of them. And he's top 70 of his class. Maybe this is why he has to come at night. He comes and he starts with all these pleasantries, with flattery. I love this as we drop back in. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you perform if God were not with them. And look at Jesus' response, verse 3. Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. <laughs> Wait. Okay. What is that an answer to? Right? That's an answer, but there wasn't a question. This, Nicodemus hasn't even asked a question. He starts with flattery, pleasantries, and Jesus just goes, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Jesus, there wasn't even a question. And maybe that's the point. Maybe that's the beauty of this moment, this conversation. Maybe Jesus' answer without a question gives us the answer to every question. 
I know that might sound a little bit corny, but think about it. Jesus' answer without a question gives us the answer to every question. This is going to be the answer to everything. You need to be in the kingdom of God. Right? Well, Tommy, my greatest obstacle right now is financial. I think you need to be in the kingdom of God. Well, Tommy, right now, the relationship or lack of relationship in my life is what's bothering me. What you really need is the kingdom of God. Tommy, I don't even have an external question right now. I'm just wondering, what's the point of my life? I'm lost. I'm hopeless. I'm full of despair. What's my purpose? This is going to be your answer. You need to be in the kingdom of God. That's really what you want at the heart of everything. It's what Jesus says. And in order to get into it, you got to be born again. It's almost as if Jesus sees Nicodemus coming in all that hunger, in all that fervor, everything he's accomplished. And Jesus immediately goes, hey, nice pleasantries, but you didn't win me over with that. You've come seeking something. And let me tell you, I have the answer for it. I don't even need to hear your question. I'm going to give you the answer. Whatever you're wrestling with, whatever right now is in front of you, whatever is keeping you awake at night, there's a reason Nicodemus isn't asleep in bed. Whatever right now you can't get off your heart and get off your mind, let me give you the answer for it. No one can see the kingdom of God, which is what you really want, unless they are born again. Circle, underline, highlight, kingdom of God. And that important in verse 3, Jesus goes here, let me tell you what you need. You need to be in and see the kingdom of God. And to get you to do that, you have to be born again. That's what your marriage needs. It's what your finances needs. It's what your relationship with your kids needs. It's what you need. Greater than the health problem you're facing right now. Better than the oncology report that's got you gripped right now. Let me tell you, what you need is you need to understand and be in the kingdom of God. That's what you need. That's the greatest goal, the greatest desire of all humanity. It's the goal of your marriage, the goal of your single what you're wrestling with is the kingdom of God. It's the goal of your identity, your sexuality. Let me tell you about your struggles. Like whether or not you're in the kingdom of God is really what's at the root of all of that. He takes all life's complexities, all we struggle with, and he goes, what you really need is to be born again. Like you had that at the beginning. You had union with God. You got cut off from that. What you need is to be born again, which Nicodemus goes, oh, verse 4. How can someone be born when they're old? Surely they can't enter a second time into their their mother's womb to be born as a kid. I was like, gross, right? But circle, underline, highlight. Notice what he seems really consumed with the words can and cannot. Circle and underline, highlight those. Can and cannot. Those are words of effort. For Nicodemus, a man who's a Pharisee, who's given his life to the Bible, remember, he's top 70, in his class. Best of the best of what religion has to offer. He's trying to understand what Jesus is saying and he gets tripped up on this word can because up until this point in his life everything has been about striving and earning and accomplishing what I can do, what I can accomplish, what I can earn. How, Jesus, can I achieve this? How can I earn it? Surely someone, Jesus, cannot. He's done everything. He's earned everything. He's accomplished everything. Yet still, here he is. And Jesus is about to put his finger on the fact that this new thing is an entirely new way of thinking. You can't earn this, Nick. It's totally different. You're used to levels. You're thinking if there's 30, you're at level 29, and you want to know the key to getting to level 30. And what I'm telling you is you got to start back over entirely. Nick, you're the best of what religion has to offer. This isn't about earning one more level. you got to start all over. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be like being born all over again. The same way you started here on earth, it's going to be like that. 
That's what he says in verse 5. Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised by my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus, once again, that word can. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. So you desire to be in God's kingdom. At the root of all your striving, that's all anybody wants. The answer, regardless of the question, Jesus says, and to do this, you have to be born again. It's like starting all over again. And Nicodemus is confused. So Jesus goes, follow the metaphor. To be here physically, you had to be born. To be awake spiritually, to be alive in God's kingdom, you have to spiritually be reborn. You can't see it, but you can see its effects. It's like the wind. It's something internal but transformative. And because it's internal and invisible like the wind, this rebirth that occurs, we need a way to communicate this change that's happened inside of us. This, well, let's call it water. He, he says that. It's like being reborn uh, by water, right? Unless they're born of water, verse 5, and the Spirit. It's called baptism, what we saw here this morning, this external way of showing something that's happened internally, right? A visible way to show something invisible, a rebirth that has happened. And Jesus follows all of it up with, you're Israel's teacher, verse 10, and you don't understand these things? (laughs) So now we have a third category for Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee, Sanhedrin, top 70, and the teacher of Israel. Like Jesus calls him that. So he's got some title that's earned him some credibility with all of it. When this man speaks, you listen. Why? Because he's the best of what religion has to offer. And yet still, he's here. He's hungry. He's lost. He's confused. And Jesus puts his finger on it. He goes, Nick, so far this has all been about you. But this isn't something you can achieve or earn. It's about what God is doing in you. You're here right now because God through his spirit is stirring something up in you. And maybe that's you today too. Maybe that's how you got here. Maybe you thought it was because someone invited you or you lost a bet. Or, or maybe you're watching right now because you stumbled on our Facebook page or our YouTube channel. Maybe you're here because someone you love is being baptized. And Jesus says, let me tell you why you're really here. You're really here because the Spirit drew you here. Verse 11, very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, we testify to what we've seen, but still you people don't accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is here referring to himself as the Son of Man. This is something he does 82 times in the New Testament, refers to him by this title, and it's a reference to a prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, when Daniel has a vision, and he says, I was watching in the night visions, behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days, they brought him near before him. Then to him was given all dominion and all glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, the one which will never be destroyed. Daniel saw a glory, he saw worship, he saw an everlasting kingdom given to this prophesied enigmatic son of man, a term that 
was familiar to the Hebrews of that day and one Jesus applied repeatedly to himself. To a man like Nicodemus who has the Old Testament memorized, who has Daniel 7 memorized, oh, he's picking up every word of what Jesus is saying here. And man, what a claim. Nicodemus, do you understand? No one can tell you about heaven unless they've been there and came down to talk to you, and that's who this is right now. I'm the son of man. Wait, you claim to be God on earth? You claim to have all power, all authority, all dominion over all religions, all people, all ethnicities, all languages. Your kingdom, your rule will never end. That's quite a claim dropped into a guy like Nicodemus who knows his Old Testament. And then we get to it. Jesus is scratching the Old Testament, and now he's going to drop right into a story that took 1,400 years to unfold. Verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, oh boy, just as Moses, wait, there was a point to that story? Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, circle, underline, highlight, there it is again, must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. He goes, you remember that story about vipers in the desert 1,400 years ago? Remember how God said, let me tell you how to be saved from the venom, the poison that's in your system. So Moses took the object of that venom, the snake, and he recreated it out of bronze, bronze being a metal that represents judgment. He puts it on a stick, and he takes it, and he puts it in the middle of the camp, and he says, anyone who wants to be saved from the venom, just come out here and look at the snake. And Nicodemus is like, yeah, I follow so far. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. Oh, Jesus knows in John chapter 3, he's going to be put on a cross. He knows that's where all of this is headed. He knows he'll take on the sin of the world. He'll be the object that needs to be judged in all of us. He will judge that object, that sin, when he is crucified. But salvation will come from it, and by it we can be saved. By believing, by looking, just as they did in Numbers. Oh, you can't lay in your bed and go, I think there's an answer, and I believe it might work. Oh, no, 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 no. you got to get out of your bed. Right, and that story in Numbers... You can't lay in your bed sick with the venom and go, I hear there's a snake in the camp and I believe it's powerful enough to heal people. No, 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 no. You got to go do something in light of that belief. You have to step out in light of that belief. We said two weeks ago, belief in the Bible, belief in the Bible is trusting God enough to do what he says. You can't just sit there and go, oh, I think there's a way to be saved. I believe that's true. I think you can have peace with God. No, you got to put your faith, your hope, your confidence in that what God says heals me, heals me. It's not your faith that saves you. You can believe a lot of things and be wrong. It's your faith in what's on the pole and, and who Jesus says that he is. Our faith doesn't save us. Our faith in what Christ did for us saves us. I can't just believe. I got to step out in light of that belief. In the same way Moses put a snake on a pole, and those who stepped out that had that venom, that poison in their bodies, and said, I believe what God says, that looking at that saves me, that saves me. Those people were saved, not because of their own striving, because of what Jesus was going to do. Notice, in response to Jesus, uh, to Nicodemus' repeated can, what can I do? These things cannot be. How can this be? One is active. You're not going to get this unless you love grammar. One is active. The other word at play is the word may, which is passive. Right? One is what I can do, active. The other is done to me, which is passive. That's the word may. We see all this in, in, in these verses. In response to our striving, 
to the grind that Nicodemus has been participating in, the climbing and achieving and working and earning. You're a Pharisee, Nick. You've got the rules down pat. You have hundreds of minor rules to help you keep the major runs, but still you're here because something's missing. You're searching. You've seeked me out. You became a member of the Sanhedrin, Nick, the top 70. You're the teacher of Israel, the best that religion has to offer. You've climbed and climbed and climbed, but you're still wondering if there's another level. And if there's 30 levels, you still won't find peace because you still won't have it. Actually, Nick, you've got to start all over, back at zero. You have to be born all over again. You don't have a leg up on anyone, even as the best of what religion has to offer, because you keep thinking it's what you can do, and it's not. It's what may be done to you. Remember, how can these things be? How can one be born again? And Jesus says, everyone who believes may be born again. It's passive. It happens to you. Jesus is saying when the Son of Man, the Son of God, is lifted up like the bronze serpent, the taking the symbol of sin and judging it, dipping it in bronze, a symbol of judgment, lifting it up. Ever notice that we're the only group of people, by the way, who take a symbol of torture and dip our jewelry in it, wear it, get it tattooed on us? We take a cross, a symbol of torture, And we go, boy, because of that, I have healing. The same as the pole. Why? Because this changes everything. Now we may have peace with God. Not earn, not can peace with God. Now we may have peace with God. And watch what follows this verse. For God so loved the world. Stop me if you've heard this one before. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's the setup for this verse. It comes after the greatest question which never got asked. The greatest question in this chapter is the one Nicodemus didn't even get a chance to get to because Jesus goes, it doesn't matter what the question is. The answer is me. Right? It doesn't matter what the question is. What you want is union with God. The greatest question Jesus anticipates and knows the answer to it, the greatest answer is the kingdom of God. What you want is me. What you want is union with God. What you really need then is to be reborn in order to get into it. We go from the greatest question to the greatest answer to the greatest illustration of all time. That's why this verse is so important. That's why the snake on the pole is so important. It's the greatest illustration of all time. A Sunday school story that didn't make any sense, a story 1,400 years early that made us go, why in the world would you put a snake on a pole and expect people to live? And then you get to this and you go, oh, that's why. Because that's what Jesus came to do. God wrote that story and goes, wait, there's something 1,400 years from now. The same way I saved my people by faith in numbers through what I did on a pole is the same way I'm going to save my people by faith in my son when he's lifted on a cross. I'm going to cleanse their venom, their sin, their sickness, what separates us. Isn't that what keeps us separated from God? A sin. It's what keeps us out of the kingdom of God. It's what keeps us from the marriage we want. What keeps you from the relationship with a son or a daughter that you want. What keeps you from the contentment you're seeking. What keeps you going to God and punching the machine and going, I want my miracle, I want my miracle. It's sin. It's poison. It's venom. John goes, you're looking at this all wrong. You're looking at miracles and you want one. What you should be looking for is a sign. And that sign points you to Jesus. 
Not to get Jesus to, but to get you to Jesus. And when you get to Jesus, you're going to find you can have the kingdom of God. You can have eternal life. That's why John 3.16 is so beautiful. For God so loved the world. When I was a kid, I thought it meant for God loved the world so much. Which it does. It translates that way. But truer to the heart of the Greek there is for God loved the world in this way. Here's, Here's how God loved the world. God loved the world. He loved it in this way, that he would send his son to be that snake on a pole, to judge your sin, to die on a cross. You guys, there's 31,000 verses in the Bible. Did you know that? 31,000 verses in the Bible. And this by far is the most popular one, John 3.16. Chances are you've seen it at a football game or on Tim Tebow's cheek. Why? Because it's a game changer. It's not what you do to get to God. It's everything God's done to get to you. For God loved you in this way so much that he sent his son that all you, whosoever believes, if you look at that Christ, you look at him, you can have your healing. You receive. You don't have to earn it. You can't. Are you kidding? You receive it. See, the scriptures teach, and maybe you know this, but back at the beginning of time in the garden, before sin, the world as God created it, we enjoyed union with God. That's the ache at the center of all. When you strip it all back, what we really want is to be reunited with our creator. But back in Genesis 3, a serpent, ironically, crawled into the garden and right up next to Eve and gets her to sin. And with that one act of sin... All the corruption in the world, all the decay, all the death, all the chaos came in with it. It's why this world isn't what it was meant to be. It's why you experience beauty around you, but you also see destruction and hurt and grief and sorrow. And because that sin entered the picture, the scriptures say God can't be in the presence of sin, and we chose it, so he goes, well, I guess I got to get out of here. But he promises, even in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I'm going to send someone who's going to buy all this back. I'm going to send someone who's going to reunite creation with creator. And that's the person of Jesus. See, the rest of the Old Testament is everything God did to get to Jesus in the Gospels. The track, the history, the timeline of what God did to make good on his promise In the Gospels, he sends a rescuer, a savior. He's the snake on the pole, the Jesus on the cross. See, the Bible says we were slaves to our sin. Like, this is slavery. The lives we live, that feeling of not being good enough, uh, that feeling of emptiness, the ache in us, that loss, the frustration, the thing that keeps us gunning for more, always needing something or wanting more. Whatever drives us, the Bible says we're slaves to it. At the root of it, it's, it's sin. All of us in Romans 3, all of us, Paul says, have sin. That Greek word there for all means all. <laughs> Every one of us. So the playing field is level. All of us are, are sinful. The footing at the cross is level. We're all, people who are religious don't have a leg up on you. Nicodemus doesn't have a leg up on you. People who were raised in the church, raised in religion, people from outside the church or outside, these folks, none of us have a leg up on one another. All of us have sinned. The ground is level for us all because all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. 
And the Bible says too that the wages of that sin is death. But the gift of God, the snake on the pole, the healing that we need is Jesus Christ our Lord. That's it. Looking at the pole. The salvation we couldn't accomplish that we're striving for is given to us. And Paul goes, boy, once you've received that, then there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You're cured. You're healed. You just look at the pole. You look at the cross. So how do we receive this? And the scriptures are clear. If you confess with your mouth, Romans chapter 10, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You know why that's so important? Jesus wrote the check that would buy our freedom with his death, but his resurrection was something God did, active and passive. It was performed on him by God. He's passive. When God raised him from the dead, it was proof that the check he wrote cleared. And now he can offer you that life. He goes, man, now you can step. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Same Greek word there translated saved is the word healed. Look at that cross. Look at that pole and be healed. And I don't want to assume everybody knew that. So if you've never prayed that, you never asked for that, you never received that, you never looked at that poll before, I want to ask everyone to bow your heads for a second. Can we do this quickly? Just bow your heads, close your eyes. If you're in need of this healing, in need of this salvation, I want to pray something that I'm going to ask you just repeat at your seat. There's nothing special or formulaic about what I'm about to say. It's just the posture of your heart. Just pray this with me. God, I know that I've sinned and am deserving of punishment. But Jesus took the punishment I deserve. Through faith in him, you say I can be forgiven. With your help, I place my trust in you for salvation. Thank you for your grace and forgiveness. The gift of eternal life. The healing I need. In Jesus' name, amen. And the Bible says that's it. You just look at the pole. You're healed. You're forgiven. Look at what Jesus has done for you. There is your healing. And to give us a way to remember, to celebrate, to experience this. The scriptures say the night before that death, that crucifixion, that Jesus gave us some instructions, the testimony of scripture in church history, that we gather together and we partake of bread and of wine to remember the salvation he offers. In fact, he said to do this until he comes back and he's coming back and he invites us to a table. The apostle Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, I received from the Lord what I've passed on to you That on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then, just after that, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Then the Apostle Paul, wanting us to take this seriously, because it's serious, he continues. He goes, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup 
in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. So everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat or drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. So the instruction there is to pause, to reflect, to examine. What we're about to do is holy and it's powerful. Over history, people have understood it different ways as they come to this table. Four primarily. One is that the Lord Jesus meets us at the table, like physically his power meets us there. Others believe that somehow our perspective is shifted up into heaven where we can see things from a new perspective at the table. There's a power there. Some historically have believed that the bread and the blood, the juice actually turns into the bread and or the, the flesh and, and blood of our Lord. Others believe it's just a memory, but a powerful one that we preach to each other until he returns. Four views, I kind of look at all of them and go, yes, can we have all those? If there's a power there, I want all of it. I want just a little healing from the snake on the pole. This is important. This is holy. So Paul says to examine yourself. So as a church, we're going to take just a moment. And after that moment, I'd invite you to move to one of these stations. There's one to my right, a little further to my right, and one back there by the back door, and then to my left over here. Make your way to these stations. Receive the bread. Receive the juice. Move back to your seat. Hold the elements. And we'll all partake together. Jesus, would you examine our hearts right now as we prepare for this moment, this powerful moment. Thank you again for joining us online. We hope you enjoyed the message. To connect with us, you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook. For more information on who we are, check out our website, midtownvineyardchurch.com. We'd love to hear from you. Make sure you leave us a review or drop us a comment. Until next time, have a great day.